I'm not proud of this, but when I was 15, I succumbed to peer pressure and had my first drink. I know. At first, like most people, I hated it. The overly strong flavor and that bitter taste. And of all people, it was my mom who sat across the table from me at a hotel in Jerusalem urging me to gulp it down. Coffee is delicious. <laughs> and it'll help you wake up in the morning. Try it. You'll see. I promise. We were touring Israel. I was fascinated by the sights and seeing where Jesus walked. But the early morning schedule was a bit much for my 15-year-old biological clock. So with more cream and sugar than coffee, much more, I began the journey. I took that drink. Now, why do I tell you this silly little story? Well, it models a principle and an element of language that's significant in our passage today. And it's actually significant for all of Christian faith. So let's look at that brief story once more from the lens of a grammar nerd. What sort of sentences do we have here? We find an indicative and an imperative. Now, in case you don't remember what these mean from grade six English class, I'll remind you. The indicative is used to express statements of fact. This is the way things are. An example of that is coffee is delicious. I think that's a fact, and I think many of you do as well. And it will help you wake up in the morning. That's definitely a fact, whether you like it or not. The imperative, on the other hand, is used in commands and instructions. Try it. You'll see. That's an imperative. And often in language, these two work together. You can see the obvious relationship in the example I've just given. Coffee is delicious, and it helps open your bleary eyes, so drink it. Well, this may sound surprising, but the Christian faith is the same way. It's always an indicative first, followed by an imperative. It's never the other way around. The gospel says Jesus is alive. This is simply the way things are. And because things are this way, this is how you're invited to respond. It's an indicative followed by an imperative, a promise followed by an invitation. Let me give you a few examples from Scripture just to show you how this works consistently in the Bible. One from Moses, one from Jesus, and one from Paul. First, Moses. When God spoke to Moses to give him the Ten Commandments, maybe the most well-known commands in the whole Bible, where does he begin? What is the first line of the Ten Commandments? Let's look at Exodus 22. It says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of, of slavery out of Egypt. That's a statement of fact. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of slavery and into freedom. I am the God who's already saved you who's already delivered you from the house of slavery. This is the first line of the Ten Commandments. So right here in Exodus, we see the indicative of the gospel always comes first. I am God who saved you. Then there's ten imperatives. Then this is how to live, how to walk in the life of freedom God has given. The first words that Jesus speaks in his ministry, according to Mark, uses the same formula. Mark 1.15 says, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The indicative says the kingdom of God is here. There's no stopping it. This is the good news. The whole world has changed because God has shown up and moved into the neighborhood. And then the imperative follows. Repent and believe it is so. 
Lastly, Paul uses this construction all throughout his letters. His instructions are always rooted in statements about, about God, about who he is, and about what he's doing. Let's look quickly at Colossians 3. It says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of this earth. Here's the facts. You have been raised with Christ, where he is seated at God's right hand. This is the truth about you. This is real. And then the instruction follows. Set your hearts and your minds on things above, not on the things of the earth. Now, this may seem like an odd place to start a sermon on Hebrews. I realize that. But I'm showing you this because it, ex it is exactly how our passage is built today. And in these details of grammar, we don't find the devil as the old saying goes, but we find the power of the gospel. An indicative and an imperative. A promise and an invitation. So here's our main idea. See if you can identify the two parts. I tried to make it as simple as I could. Here it is. The new and living way to God is open. It's here. Let's walk it together in faith, hope, and love. There's a new and living way to God. It's here. It's open. Now let's walk it together in faith, hope, and in love. The promise of a new and living way to God is really a short restatement of the same good news that Hebrews has been telling us since the beginning, and particularly since chapter 8. It's in verses 19 to 21. And if you've been a part of our Hebrews series, you have definitely heard something like this before. I get that, but let's listen to it again. In verses 19 to 21, Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he's opened up for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Let's pause right there. What is this promise? It's that we have the right, the assurance and the, bold, and the boldness to enter into God's holy presence. How do we have this? Because we have an unparalleled high priest named Jesus Christ, who stands in God's presence on our behalf. He has opened up a new and living way to God through his priestly service, by bringing God to the people and by bringing the people to God in his very life and in his breath and even in his flesh. Hebrews goes so far as to call Christ's flesh the curtain that has been opened up to bring us into this holiest place of God's dwelling. He has in mind the curtain that hung in the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. There's a large, heavy tapestry that closed off the Holy of Holies from the surrounding inner courts of the temple. This is the same curtain that Matthew and Mark and Luke all record being ripped open at the moment when Jesus breathed his last on the cross. The commentator William Barclay observes that in some sense, Jesus' flesh veiled his divinity. And when his flesh was torn, then God was truly revealed, leading the Roman centurion who was overseeing Jesus' execution to say and believe, surely this was the Son of God. So again, this is what the church is reminded of in Hebrews. It's saying these are the facts. This is the way things are. 
And this is what we are reminded of. Christ has opened up this new and living way to God for us through his, through his presence. We have the right to enter in, to run into his courts, to forsake all else and dwell there freely forever. This is the core of the gospel in Hebrews 10. And it's good news. So now let's see. This is the good news. How are we invited to respond? So since Christ has opened up for us this new and living way, we'll pick it back up in verse 22 to 25. This is the second half of our passage, moving into the imperative side. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's first note something very important about these exhortations. They're communal. They're communal imperatives, not individual. The writer challenges the church together and includes himself to walk in this new and living way to God. He says, let us, church, draw near to Christ in full assurance of faith. Let us, church, hold fast to our hope in Christ, who is our priest. And let us, church, stir one another up to love and to good works. This is an important word for us because it's very difficult to follow Jesus Christ on our own. This isn't what God ever intended for us. This, uh, the New Testament consistently speaks of this life following Jesus Christ, this life of faith, as a communal life, as a shared life. There's many images given, and they're almost all communal. Uh, Paul tells us we are the body of Christ, functioning and joined together in unity as a body, and Christ is the head. He also uses the, temple, or the image of the temple of God, that we're built together with like different stones, and Christ being the cornerstone of the temple. Further, we're adopted into God's family. We're his children, and God is our father. And even we're grafted in like a shoot into a plant, into God's covenant people, into a plant that has many branches and many leaves. And of course, Jesus does the exact same thing. He didn't start a school to teach people the best way to live. No, he formed a new community. He called 12 people to follow him, to walk with him, to experience the power of God together with him, which often happened around a table at mealtimes. And he gave the gift of the Holy Spirit, of one spirit, to bond the church together in unity. Now, the biblical emphasis on the importance of communal life and the power of it really should come as no surprise to us, right? If nothing else, when we stop and think about the power of community and human relationships, it makes a lot of sense. We all know that our different communities, the different people we're surrounded by, impact us deeply. I notice the effects of this when Deanna and I and my wife visit our families in the States. There are little bits of Canadian dialect here and there that we've adapted really unaware that we've adapted, but it comes out and they look at us a little funny. Things like saying grade six instead of sixth grade, or washroom instead of bathroom, or process instead of process, holiday over vacation, university over college, and Mazda over Mazda. 
I actually don't do that one yet. I still think it's weird. <laughs> the point is we're, we're fund, fundamentally affected by the communities we exist in. It's inescapable. This is why parents worry about who their teenagers are hanging out with, right? It's why thousands of people a few years ago filmed themselves dumping buckets of ice water on their heads on social media. It's why we do all sorts of things, both good things and evil things. And it's why the pastoral exhortation in Hebrews is a communal one, not an individual one. Remember who Paul is writing to, an urban church who's struggling to maintain faith. They're considering giving up and throwing in the towel. As Alistair preached last week, this is a call for the church to persevere in a hard time, to travel down this new and living way to God in Christ together, because the chances of making it alone are really very slim. This image is from an illustrated version of John Bunyan's famous allegory for the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress. And as I thought about this passage, and particularly this phrase, the new and living way to God, this image kept coming to my mind. I loved this story, uh, particularly this version, this picture book of it as a child. Those images are vivid in my mind still. But as it relates to this passage and this facet of faith, I then realized it actually doesn't quite fit Though there are times when we feel alone in our struggles, and like following Jesus, we, are, we feel alone, and the assaults of evil around us um, makes us feel isolated like the pilgrim here. The call in Hebrews is to follow Christ together as a community. We don't have to do it alone. That's his message. The community is challenged together to walk in the three Christian virtues of faith, of hope, and of love. Now, these are words that can mean many different things to many different people in many different contexts. I realize that. So I want to do our best to hear them as the author of Hebrews intended for us to hear them. We looked at hope. We explored hope last week um, at great length in connection with perseverance. So today I'm going to focus on the other two of these three, faith and love. So let's go to verse 22. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Faith is the beginning. It is Christ's faithfulness that has opened up this new way to God. It is Christ who continues to intercede for us. And faith is a gift that he has given to all of those who believe. But let's be clear, this isn't an ambiguous faith. It's not just faith in faith, so to speak. It's not faith in the future, or in yourself, or in your ideas, or in someone else's ideas, or in the goodness of humanity, or in human progress, or in fate. It's not in any of these things. It's a very specific faith. This is faith in Christ, a conviction that He is alive, and that His promises are actually true. And that he is a faithful high priest interceding for us to God forever. We are to draw near together with genuine hearts that desire God. We can do this with full assurance, we are told, not because of our own goodness or our felt experience of God even, but because of Jesus Christ and his unwavering faithfulness to us, because of his promises to us. 
And his faithfulness to us and to you is perfect. He doesn't tire in his intercession for us. He doesn't stumble in it. He does not doubt whether it was a good idea to bring you into his family or not. No, Jesus lifts us up. He lifts you up. Represents us to the Father. He stands for you and with you with joy. He delights in every single one of his children. Now, I want to share two practical ways that we as a community can draw near to Christ in faithfulness, particularly as a body. First, it's caring for one another and being faithful for one another in times of suffering and difficulty. I want to tell you a little story to illustrate that. Uh, it's about a friend of mine named Karen. So not long after Deanna and I moved to Vancouver, we experienced a severe tragedy. Our church that we'd been a part of in Wyoming before here um, has a relationship with a, a village in Nicaragua, and they support this village on a long-term basis. And so we, the church goes down, taking trips to visit the people and to assist in community development projects. And Deanna and I had gone on this trip a year before moving here, and then we moved to Vancouver, and it was happening again. And our friend named Karen was going to go on this trip. We'd been in a community group with her for a couple years. That's her on the edge there. That's me on the other side, if you can't recognize me from years ago. Um, so this time, Karen was going on this trip, and she was really excited about it. Um, it. It went great. And then on the last day of the trip, the team was at this other town, kind of regrouping and talking through it. And something horrible happened. She went missing one afternoon. She just didn't come to their to their meeting. And we found out about this, and it was it was terrifying. It was a terrible couple days. Um, she couldn't be found. We couldn't rest. We couldn't eat. Uh, it was just this experience of absolute fear. Like, what is happening to my friend? Where is she? What's going on? <sighs> and after a few days, our fears were confirmed. She'd, act, she'd been murdered, and her body was found in the woods. And we were here. We just moved here to Vancouver. We didn't know anyone, really. Um, and we felt isolated, being apart from the rest of this grieving community of our friends who did know her. We didn't really know how to function. And although the St. Pete's community, we just come to this church, um, they didn't share our grief in the same way because they didn't know her. But they cared for us. The pastoral staff reached out to us and came to us and prayed with us. Families who we barely knew brought us meals and asked us how we were doing, came to our house. They didn't have to do that, but they did. You see, our faith in, in this time of brokenness was only kept alive by experiencing God's faithfulness in other people. And in times of suffering, this is what drawing near together means. It's drawing near in Christ and community is leaning on those who have faith when you can't and providing your faith for those who can't in their moment of grief and difficulty. And the second way we practice this faith together is connected. Uh, it's drawing near to Christ together by telling our own stories. Stories when we see God working and stories when we don't see Him working, but we choose to wait together expectantly and eagerly to find Him and to hear His voice. At St. Peter's, we like to share our stories of renewal and faith, and they're all ongoing stories. They're not completed stories. 
So I urge you, if you ever have a story to share about your faith or experience, we'd love to hear it. We share them on Sundays here. We also share them online. So however you're comfortable doing that, we would love to hear and share your story. And we don't just do this because we think it's a cool thing. Um, we need to recount our stories to one another and for one another because they lift our spirits and they remind us we're not alone in the things we're going through. And they give us vision to see how God is working in our midst and in our communities when we're not able to see it for ourselves. So caring for one another and sharing our stories. Now we'll move to the final call that Hebrews gives us, and that is to love. The final call in this new and living way. So let's look at verses 23 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let us consider how to stir up one another to love. Of faith, hope, and love, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, love is the greatest, it's the goal, it's the end, what we're striving for of all Christian virtue. But what does Hebrews mean by love? Of any words that we could discuss today, this one has to be clarified the most. So I'm going to borrow a distinction <clears throat> from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who resisted the Nazis during World War II and was executed in a concentration camp in 1945. In his classic work, Life Together, Bonhoeffer describes the difference between human love on the one hand, and spiritual love on the other. He says this, Human love is directed at the other person for that person's sake. Spiritual love loves him for Christ's sake. Therefore, human love seeks direct contact with the other person. It loves him not as a free person, but as one whom it binds to itself. Human love creates of itself an end, an idol which it worships to which it must subject everything. It nurses and cultivates an ideal. It loves itself and nothing else in the world. Spiritual love, however, comes from Jesus Christ. It serves him alone. It knows that it has no immediate access to other persons because the relationship is always in Christ. Hebrews exhorts us to this spiritual love. The new and living way to God is through Christ through knowing him and encountering his love for us, which means our love for one another is always first for Christ's sake, not for our own or for the other person's, that he may be glorified and that the other person may be brought into deeper communion with God first, not us first, but God. This is why we are commanded to provoke one another to love and good works. Human love doesn't provoke, it avoids, it acquiesces. It takes the road around conflict in order to maintain a thin layer of connection. So here's, an, here's another example for you. Um, when Deanna was pregnant with our son Elliot, she was very sick for months, for a long time. Uh, she could do little more than go to work, come home and eat dinner, and go to sleep and do it again. I mean, she was ill. It was not fun. Um, so for months, I really did everything to keep her life running. And at times, I was exhausted by this and burnt out. And to be honest, I struggled to not harbor bitterness 
in my own heart towards her for how hard things were for me. I'm not proud to say that, but I did. Uh, and in these moments of sin, I was blinded from seeing her and loving her in the pain and exhaustion that she was in, which was very real, let me assure you. I desperately wanted my needs catered to in that experience, and it's all I could see. Now, during one of these spirals, my best friend and his wife came to visit us for the weekend. One night, he and I were out to pick up dinner, some takeout, and I was sharing these struggles with him on our drive. He listened well, uh, and then he responded in a way that I didn't, I didn't expect. With gentleness and respect, he told me what I, what I needed to hear, which was that I needed to shift my focus off of myself and reminded me that I'd actually made a covenant to love my wife as Christ loves the church. And he encouraged me I wasn't alone in that. He didn't shame me, but he also didn't let me continue living in a delusion that I was actually the center of the world. I've clung to that moment ever since because it did sting, but it was a glimpse of true spiritual community. I was loved with what Bonhoeffer called spiritual love. For Christ's sake, not my own, he was more concerned that I saw Jesus than that we got along in that moment. Spiritual love goes beyond our own cravings for community, our own need for relationship, which, if it's left by itself, makes us possessive in relationships and instead seeks to serve the other freely. Spiritual love values truth, and points the other to truth before it will settle for a shallow connection. It's with spiritual love only that we're able to even consider obeying Christ when he says to love our enemies. Enemies being people who reject us and who don't fulfill anything in us. We don't get anything out of that relationship. This is the call to Hebrews in Hebrews to stir one another up to God's love, his divine spiritual love. That's the sort of love that marks this new and living way to Jesus. This love encourages and provokes one another, and it is always done in service to Jesus Christ first and for his sake, not our own. This means we refuse to allow our relationships stay superficial. They can't be permissive. They can't exist just to make one another feel better about ourselves. It means when conflict arises in our friendships, in our community groups, we're not loving one another with spiritual love until we respect one another enough to have an honest conversation, a handshake conversation, to speak directly to one another and do so under the name of Jesus, recognizing that both of us and all of us are adopted into his family. It's not about keeping the peace. It's about fighting for a new depth of peace, a new experience of peace, that can only come when we walk this new and living way that God has opened up for us together through the curtain of Christ's flesh in community. And of course it's risky, and of course it's vulnerable, and of course it's painful. We shouldn't expect anything less when we realize that the fount of this spiritual love is Christ's scars on the cross. But walking this way with others is anything but temporary and shallow. Because the end of spiritual love isn't just mere connection. It's spiritual connection. It's true. It's the place of true healing and beauty. Because it fights not to see the sin in the other person, 
It's easy to do that. We're good at immediately seeing the flaws in other people. But with spiritual love, the, the aim is to see the image of God in the other person, to see that and to call that forth, no matter what else is going on. So Christian faith, remember, is always an indicative first that's leading to an imperative, never the other way around. Remember the indicative? Jesus Christ has opened for us a new and living way to God. It's here. It's available. But here's something interesting. While our obedience to the invitation that follows does not and never will be the starting point of our faith, it can't be. That's always with Christ and with His work. Obedience will draw us into a richer and livelier experience of it. Think back to the story I told you about coffee. Whether or not I drank the coffee wouldn't change its deliciousness or its impact on sleepy eyes. That would be real, regardless of whether I drank it or not. However, I wouldn't know what it tastes like and, and felt like until I picked up the mug and drank it. That's how it works in our journeys pursuing Christ. As we obey Him, as we draw to, near to Christ together, as we hope for our redemption together, as we love one another for Christ's sake, not for our own, we begin to experience this bold, amazing promise that Hebrews has been giving us over and over. It's walking in these steps, taking these steps, that gives us the sort of knowledge of someone who has tasted, tasted for ourselves, and seen that the Lord is good, because we've lived it, because we can tell the story. In community life, this experience could look like a couple things. It could look like being not so disappointed in other people in our lives, our friends, our family, our spouses, when they fail to bring us happiness. Because we know, our, because we know only Christ can satisfy the supernatural longings in our souls. It could be seeing others not for what they can do for us as objects to be used but for who they are in the eyes of God, image bearers of His Son. And whether they're an enemy or a friend, whether they provide anything for us or whether they don't, our desire is to bless them. It could also be having a solid grounding of confidence underneath our feet, a confidence that's not in ourselves, but in Christ who, who has loved us first. Now, I get that community life is messy and broken, and oftentimes doesn't feel like or experience at all what I'm describing. I really do get it. And if you've had a terrible or hurtful experience in the church, whether here or whether at another place, I am truly sorry for that. It's worth grieving. And I want you to know we are here to walk with you in those stories, to hear them, and to try to begin to find together a place of healing. But I do still want to invite you in onto this new and living way to Christ together. Because if you have tasted what it can be, even just, even just if for a moment, then you've seen, you've experienced a glimmer of what God's inviting us into. This is our invitation today. Let us walk this new and living way together. And let us walk it together in faith, in hope, and in love.